Welcome to Whores Talk Horror. We're not really whores. We just like wordplay. Hello. Welcome to Whores Talk Horror. I'm Sharon. And I'm Melinda. And today we have our first uh, true crime episode, which we're both very, very excited to talk about. Today we are going to be talking about the disappearance of Susan Powell. And it's a doozy, baby. It is so good. So um, if you've not heard of the story before, get ready. And if you have heard of the story before, um, get ready. Because <laughs> you, you might learn some new stuff. Um, I'm actually really, really surprised that neither of us heard of this story before. I, I saw it on... Uh, I rely on my uh, ID American murder mystery show specials, and this was one of them. Yeah, and actually, Spencer told me about it because Hulu recommended it. Yes, as something for me to watch. Yes, and I was like, okay, cool. I'm running out of uh, things to watch, and I've been binging um, Evil Lives Here on Investigation Discovery. Oh yeah, baby. Um, which is one of my favorites. And so... I think I I just got a text from you that was like, oh my god, have you seen this Susan Powell? Yeah, so um, basically I started watching it and I was texting Mindy during the whole thing like, holy shit, you have to watch this documentary. (laughs) Oh my god, it's fucking crazy. Oh my god, there's so many twists. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Like, you have to watch this. And yeah, so if you're not familiar with Investigation Discovery... It's basically the best channel ever. <laughs> it's just all true crime all the time. And between ID and HGTV, I don't ever need to watch anything else. And if ID and HGTV ever join forces to create a show, that would be the best thing ever. Imagine a show where the first part was kind of like the first 48 and they find some bodies in a house somewhere and the detectives come in, they do their investigation and collect evidence and gather suspects and they catch the killer. And then the second part of the show could be like Fixer Upper and Chip and JoJo come in (laughs) and they like totally flip the house and JoJo would be like, hey Chip, uh... What do you think we put some shiplap up on this wall over here to cover up this blood splatter? And then, um, you know, we we tear out this blood-soaked rug and we add some wood-grained uh, ceramic tile over here. And that's that's my Joanna Gaines impersonation. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Joanna. I'm so sorry, Jojo. I love you. Um, and then you can, you know the announcer comes on and he's like, "Watch Chip and Jojo transform this blood bath into a master bath." See them turn this kill room into a killer walk-in closet. <laughs> I love it. And then it could be called Killer Spaces. I would totally watch that show. Why are we not TV producers? I know. If any TV producers out there want to make this show, you know what? I love Chip and JoJo, but fuck them. They've got enough money. Call us. Also, this is our idea. Or Sharon's idea, really, I should say. But we... It's documented yes. on our podcast that we had this idea. Mindy and I should host a show. 8-8 eight, eight of 19. We we came up with this idea. So That's amazing. Call That's amazing. Us. Also, Sharon didn't tell me about that. And I just, I think that's a brilliant idea. <laughs> We're going to be millionaires. I'll, I'll, even though I didn't tell you about it, I'll give you partial credit. Okay. Thank you, Sharon. That was amazing. <laughs> uh, and now to get to the actual story of the disappearance of Susan Powell. 
What we are about to read are notes that we took while watching the Investigation Discovery documentary on Susan Powell and also the two-part Oxygen documentary on Susan Powell and also there was a uh, short Missing Pieces episode that covered some of the points that were not covered in the original ID documentary. And let's begin. Susan Powell was a 28-year-old mother of two living in West Valley City, Utah. She was married to Josh Powell, who, after you hear this story, Josh Powell pretty much makes Scott Peterson look like a husband of the year. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So on the outside, they looked like the typical Mormon family. They were very religious. They had a tight-knit circle of friends to the church. But on December 7th, 2009... Susan and Josh's two young sons had not shown up to their daycare center, and the concerned daycare owner and also family friend, Debbie Caldwell, realized something might be wrong when Susan, who was always on time dropping off the boys, did not show up or call to let Debbie know that they would be late. Debbie called Susan and Josh's jobs, and neither of them had showed up for work that day either. And neither of them had called in to work that day to say that they weren't coming in. Since this was extremely out of character for them, Debbie decided to drive to the Powell's house and look for them. There was no answer at the house, and there were no footprints in the snow. And there were no tire tracks in the snow leading from out their garage. Debbie thought that maybe there had been a carbon monoxide leak in the house and decided to call Josh's sister, Jennifer. Jennifer and her mother arrived at the house and they decided to call the police since Susan and Josh were not answering their phones. Police showed up and decided that under the circumstances, there may have been a carbon monoxide leak in the house and decided to break the front window to get inside. The police searched the house and no one is there. There's no signs of forced entry and the family vehicle is missing from the garage. Police also find Susan's purse, wallet, keys, and another small set of keys that they have no idea where those keys belong to, and also her snow boots are there, even though it had been snowing outside. Detective Ellis Maxwell was assigned to the case, as it looked like the entire family had now gone missing. Upon searching the house, nothing looked out of place or unusual except for in the living room. There were two box fans that had been propped up and were blowing on the couch, which had just been cleaned, which was a little suspicious. A statewide bulletin was issued to search for the Powell's minivan. Investigators started talking to the Powell's closest friends and learned more about the couple. Susan was the girl next door, extremely friendly and outgoing, and one of four daughters who grew up in Puyallup, Washington. She was born and raised in the uh, Church of Latter-day Saints. She wanted to get married, start a family, In 2000, when she was 19 years old, she met 24-year-old Josh at a Mormon singles event. Josh had two brothers and two sisters. His family started out as a fairly strong LDS family. Josh's parents started having a lot of problems, and his mom, Terry, ended up leaving his father, Stephen, after a long, drawn-out divorce ensued. Stephen retained custody of most of the kids, and Josh had a chaotic childhood. Susan's friends describe Josh as being loud, obsessive, a know-it-all who liked to brag about himself and didn't like it when other people had conflicting opinions. So he was kind of the opposite of Susan in a lot of ways. Um, But Josh and Susan decided to get married about eight months after dating. 
And to save money, they moved in with Josh's dad, Stephen, who, oh man, this guy. But they decided to move in with him for a bit before moving to West Valley City, Utah, two years later to live closer to Josh's mom and sister Jennifer. They move to Utah, they buy a house, Susan becomes a stockbroker, and Josh goes into IT services. They have two kids, Charlie and Brayden. I spelled that Baden. <laughs> I think it was Brayden though, right? I think so too. Okay. Um, so about 12 hours after they had been reported missing, around 7 p.m., Josh and his two and four-year-old boys come home, but Susan is not with them. The police immediately walk up to the car and ask Josh where he had been. He tells police that around midnight the night before, he decided to take the boys winter camping at Simpson Springs. All right. I haven't said anything until now because I just wanted to lay out the story and let you do the first half and whatever. But yeah, I was like, who takes their two and four year old kids midnight camping in a snowstorm, which, uh, yeah, is exactly what Detective Alice asked him why they would leave in the middle of the night during a snowstorm. And he explained that he did this all the time. Also, he forgot what day it was. And he, well, That's my he, favorite part. We'll get, we'll get to that. Sorry. Um, but yeah, um, they do this all the time. And the boys want to go out and have some s'mores, you know, at midnight as, you know, little kids do. As you do. Yeah. yeah. Good parenting. His excuse for not answering his phone was that he wanted to conserve his battery since he didn't have a char- charger, even though the cop was talking to him, the detective was talking to him, and saw the phone clearly being charged in the car. So, bullshit. Um, <laughs> people who know Josh did say that he was eccentric and kind of a weirdo, so the fact that he took his boys midnight camping was not out of character for him. Which, I'm sorry... Red flags right there. It's, but. It's, I mean, there's so many red flags right away from, yeah. But we don't live in Utah, so maybe people do go camping at midnight. Midnight camping with young kids. They do it all the time. Uh, when the cop asked Josh where Susan was, he said that she should be at work. Ellis told him that she was not at work and that he needed to come down to the station ASAP. Meanwhile, Susan's friends were desperately trying to get a hold of her and find out where she was. Her friend Kiersey called another friend, Giovanna, who stated that she was with them the previous night. She said that Josh was making dinner for them, uh, pancakes specifically for them, while they were hanging out and talking in another room. At the police station, Josh is being interviewed with his sons in the room and the detectives. He states that the last time he saw his wife was around midnight the night before at home, right before he left to go camping. She then went to bed. When questioned about why he would take his boys camping on a Sunday night when he had work the next day, he said he forgot it was Sunday, even though they're a religious family and they more than likely, I think, went to church that day. He somehow... Not to mention, like, work to make a living, so you have to be there Monday morning. Yeah. Kind of need to keep track of the days. (laughs) One would think. But, you know, whatever. Whatever. Uh, I'm not a parent. I don't know. (laughs) I'm sure none of this is bringing up suspicion to the cops at all. (laughs) So his car was searched, and there was a bunch of camping equipment, which was found in the car, so that corroborated his story. The next day, he was asked to come back to the police station for more questioning, but without his kids. He didn't seem very concerned about his wife's well-being while he was being interviewed. He didn't ask the police what they thought 
had happened to her or how he could help. He's usually a very talkative person who never shuts up, but when asked questions, he would say very little to the police or he would just not answer their questions at all. He also kept bringing up the fact that the police broke the window to his house and seemed way more concerned about his broken window than the fact that his wife was missing. So they did mention this, that I think uh, the daycare worker and also maybe his family had keys to the house. But they had the well. They called the welfare check because they couldn't get a hold of anybody, and that's how the cops broke the window, right? According to him, the daycare worker, I believe, had keys to their house. So it was like, okay. why didn't she just use her keys? I mean, she might not have had them on her, but he was kept saying, you know, why didn't she just use her keys to get into the house? Why did they have to break a window? Now I have to pay for this window. Yeah. Not to mention my wife's funeral. I mean, what? <laughs> So yeah, he did not, he, he was more concerned with the fact that the window was broken than the fact that his wife was even missing. Another red flag on top of <laughs> many. M- many so far. So while Josh is being interviewed, he doesn't know that detectives are in the other room talking to his kids. When his oldest son, Charlie, is asked who he went camping with, he responds he was camping with his dad, mom, and brother. Then, when asked who he came home from camping with, he said, his dad, his mom stayed at the park, quote, where the crystals are. Maybe he's talking about icicles? That's a good point. I could not figure out what I thought he was talking about, honestly. I mean, snow, you know, snow in, in the moonlight. Oh, but the cave. There's a cave mention yeah, eventually Later. there's, um, they talk about where, the area where they went camping, there's caves, there's also mines. So maybe the drop down in caves of, might have looked crystalline because of the cold? Well, there could be icicles hanging down and that too, yeah. from the yeah, opening yeah, yeah, of the yeah. caves. Um, so, so, so it's cryptic regardless. It's cryptic. She decided to stay where the crystals are? It's very That's creepy. Like the creepiest thing to hear a five-year-old or whatever say. So when Josh was given this information, he said that his kids were lying. So the cops said, your kids lie? And he said, well, yeah, sometimes. Which, I mean, kids lie. They don't tell the truth. They, especially when they're doing something wrong, you know, kids are going to lie. But in this situation, what reason would the kids have to lie? Plus, if you watch the special, they show the police video. And, like, the kid, I don't know how kids look when they lie, really, but he does not appear. Like, he's literally just telling a story as he knows it. You can see it. Like, it's not like he's making it up. It's not like yeah. he's stopping to think about the answers to the questions. He's just answering the questions. And like, it was it's no big thing. It was a, a very nice female detective who was asking yes. him questions. He was kind of in a playroom and just kind of, you know, he, he wasn't scared or it was exactly. just like oh I was with my mom my brother my dad oh we went camping oh who came home oh just me and my brother and my dad yeah there was no like coercion mm-hmm. or he had no reason to lie about any of this um so the fact that that Josh would say that his his son made all that up doesn't Father of the year. Another, That's all I gotta say. Another red flag right there. The cops did not have enough evidence yet to keep Josh there or charge him with anything, so they let him leave, but told him he can't go home because his house is now under investigation. Uh, they're collecting evidence there, so it's pretty much kind of a crime scene, even though he has not been charged with a crime yet officially. Sure. So uh, cops took a ton of computer hardware, uh, drives, towers from the house, because... 
like we said, Josh, he was into IT, and we'll discuss it a little bit later, but he, yeah, he used to make a lot of his own do-it-yourself computer. Which I I was just going to say that, like, when I watched the special, I I think somebody at one point said something about, like, oh, and he had these souped-up computers, and when they showed his computers, I was like, okay, it looks like a monkey made that with paper clips (laughs) and scotch tape, but that's just my They were, yeah, they were pretty bad-looking. There was also a bunch of small blood droplets that were found on the floor adjacent to the couch that was cleaned, almost like someone had sneezed blood. Other members of the West Valley City Police Force drove out to Simpson Springs to see if they can find any evidence or locate Susan's body. But due to fresh snow snowfall, they could not find any evidence to corroborate Josh's story or not. Without any other new leads, they began to search through some of the external hard drives taken from Josh's house. All the hard drives were heavily encrypted, and the police could not access anything on the drives. Which is shady in and of itself, because why do you have so many heavily encrypted hard drives? Yeah. Red flags. So now on December 16th, with still no other evidence to help the police with their investigation... And with Josh seemingly obstructing the investigation, they decide to officially make Josh a person of interest. However, the police still do not have a clear-cut motive for why he would want to kill his wife. Once all the focus was on Josh as the only prime suspect in the disappearance of his wife, he packed up all his kids and moved to Washington in the middle of the night without telling anyone and moved in with his father. After media stations all over the country started covering this case and Josh became the main focus, the media obviously was hounding Josh for answers and interviews, and he became more and more withdrawn. He finally decided to do a one-on-one interview and announced that Susan was very emotionally abused as a child, her mother has anger issues, and her father is very manipulative. Which, this is very typical of someone who is a suspect, and you have a victim, and that guilty person tries to put the blame on the victim to take, yep, to take uh, fault away from themselves. To right. me, that is another huge red flag that he is guilty because right. he's not showing any concern for his wife, the victim. Just pointing the blame elsewhere. Pointing the blame elsewhere. Ugh, he's so disgusting. He made her sound promiscuous, uh, like she was abused by her family, and that her only choice left was to flee. Then Josh and his father start a website about Susan with a theory that they came up with of what may have happened, and I'm going to say 100% this was Josh's father's idea to come up with this story. Totally. Um, So basically, the story they came up with and put out on this website was that around the time of Susan's disappearance, another man around her age went missing named Stephen Kocher. They basically came out and said that the two of them probably ran away to start a new life together, even though there was no evidence that the two of them had ever met. So, more red flags being thrown up, uh, trying to place the blame on not only one, but now two victims, uh, completely unrelated in my opinion, But, yeah, they're just trying to take the heat off of Josh because he clearly did it. So, (laughs) (laughs) at least that's my opinion, and I'm sure it's Mindy's opinion as well. Um, 
So then, in February of 2010, Susan's family held a press conference and came out and said that Susan was a victim of domestic abuse in her own home. Susan had a difficult marriage and an adversarial relationship with her husband, Josh. Susan told her friends that she did not want to worry her parents, so she shared very little of her personal problems with Josh with them. Friends believe that the dynamic of Susan and Josh's relationship changed when Susan became pregnant with her first child. He would treat her more rudely and talk down to her while she was pregnant. She thought that maybe once the baby was born that things would go back to normal. Josh became super controlling over Susan almost to the point of being sadistic. And this is where you kind of learn about Josh's true colors and man this stuff just infuriates me he would give her a grocery list and say that there are items that are on sale at this store you can buy these items and nothing else he would give her ten dollars and tell her that that was all she could have to buy groceries for the entire week for a family who can feed a family of four on ten dollars a week totally that is that is impossible that is virtually impossible to do I couldn't even do that for just myself, let alone, you know, two kids and and my spouse. So she would be forced to call her friends to ask to borrow food for her kids to feed them because they were hungry and she had no food for them. Meanwhile, Josh would go and stock up on food for himself, like chips and salsa, that he would keep in the house, but she was not allowed to eat. Her and the kids were not allowed to eat the food that he would bring into the fucking house. He would change the PIN number on their debit card so she couldn't take money out from their joint checking account. Even though she had her own job and made her own money and was self-sufficient and she could probably leave him, take care of the two kids on her own, but he would take all of her money that she worked for during the week Well, I think she firmly believed, I mean, she was very close to her religion, and I think that she just believed, like, well, but marriage is marriage, and there's that common divorce is horrible belief amongst. Yeah, but So I think that's what she was kind of holding on to. We're all assuming, because none of us know, because... None of us know. We've never found But this is, this is clearly spousal abuse if, and child abuse. You're basically starving your own children. I don't think any Absolutely. religion tells you that this is okay behavior, this is acceptable behavior. And as we find out, she definitely was planning to leave him over this behavior. Right. But he would also refuse to buy presents for the kids around Christmas. So she would have to hide money from him so that she could buy them gifts. I'm not sure how maybe she talked to her work and said, you know, can you put a little bit of money aside in like a different account? I'm not really sure how she got money since he seemed to control all of it. They didn't really go into those details. No, her friends knew about it though. So maybe like a, well, we're not going to suppose. But yeah. yeah. I, I'm not really sure how she got this extra money to hide since he seemed to control all the money. So meanwhile, Josh was spending thousands of dollars on electric toy cars because all adult men need electric toy cars. Uh, He would also spend the money on computer equipment and for some reason, thousands of pounds of wheat. It was like he was stocking up for Armageddon was the thought that I had. And also... Was really, what are you, really you going to do with electric toy cars when the world's coming to an end, though? They showed photos of the... He literally had these uh, big round containers in a room of wheat. Who knows what the fuck 
he was going to do with my, that. My other thought was just that he was like, I can buy all of this. Like, as an intimidation, <laughs> like, I'm giving you 10 bucks for the week to feed our family, but I can buy all of this. Maybe she was supposed stuff. to, like, make food with the wheat. Like, make their own bread. <laughs> I have no idea. Make their own pastas. and <laughs> Right away, I went to Armageddon, but whatever. I, I mean, Armageddon, I could see if he was buying, like, guns, but electric cars and computer equipment... That's not going to help you when the end of the world's here. Right. The wheat, I, I'll, give, I'll give you that, but not the rest of the crap he was fucking buying. Um, and then there was also at least one uh, known incident where Josh got physical with Susan. So phone tips started coming in about Josh. One tip came from a guy named Scott who met Josh at a Christmas party a year before Susan went missing. He said that Josh was talking to him about the best ways to dispose of a body and that he would dump it down a mine shaft, like a vertical one, because it's so unstable, no one would be able to search for a body in there. Um, Good to know. Thanks. Yeah, that's, you know, normal cocktail party conversation. That's not suspicious at all, which... Go, going back to the talk about mom is where the crystals are. I mean, yeah, maybe there was like a open mine shaft that had icicles or something hanging from it. Yeah. And he pushed Susan down there and told the kids, oh, mom's just going to go hang out with the crystals. <laughs> so then in the summer of 2010, police mounted a massive search for Susan's remains in the West Deserts of Utah where there are tens of thousands of these mines. And by August of 2010, police had logged over 6,000 man-hours in the deserts, but their searches came up empty. Shocker. That, I mean, he was right. If there's a, a place to hide a body, that would be the place. And no matter how many hours you spend down there, it was probably impossible to find every single mine. And if you could you probably would not be able to get to the bottoms of these mines to find out if there's any remains. Precisely, yep. And by that time, who knows, you know, with decomposition, if there would have even been much left of her body. So, now it's August of 2011. Susan's still missing, and the case is still at a standstill. And with not enough evidence to arrest Josh. Investigators now start to look at Josh's father, who is Josh's biggest supporter. And my favorite part of this story, and I don't mean that in a good way. I mean, he's definitely the most fascinating part, and we definitely learn why Josh is the way well, that he is. We will find that out very soon. Yeah. So Susan's family truly believes that Josh has something to do with Susan's disappearance, and they won't let up on him. So they get a restraining order against Susan's parents because, once again, let's blame someone else. Susan's parents are now the bad ones. Um, So let's get a restraining order against them to keep them away from Josh because they just want answers and they just want to know where their daughter is. But Josh is, once again, the victim here. And the two families hate each other. The police and the lawyers... The police and the lawyers for Susan's family, I should say, they come up with an idea to stir up emotions from Josh and his father, hoping to glean some new evidence that will lead them somewhere in a new direction. They decide to organize a honkin' wave, which, (laughs) if you don't know what that is, because honkin' wave sounds, um... It's kind of literally what it 
sounds like, though, really. Well, like, unless, unless you have a kind of a dirty mind. <laughs> <laughs> and then it sounds like something completely different. Um, but, it, yeah, it literally is just holding up signs, like, have you seen Susan Powell with pictures of her on it? And Honk if you care. Honk if you care. You know, wave at us. Something. Let's let's open this case up again. It's been years. Get more attention. Exactly. Get more attention. Uh, get more publicity. Anything to help find our daughter. And I should, uh, I just want to interject here that when Susan's parents did this, specifically her father, I think, was kind of really mostly like the ringleader. Not, I don't want to say ringleader, but he kind of helped organize. They had a good reaction because in the special they show them, Susan's family, with a bunch of volunteers doing, you know, holding up signs. And people are honking and waving. And there is a camera crew. Oh, yeah. No. And it, so it was pretty successful. And I'll let you take it from here. It was very successful. And it did exactly what the police and lawyers wanted it to do. Oh, yeah, it did. So the honk and wave was near an intersection by a grocery store that Josh frequents. And it's all over the news. So Josh and his dad, Stephen, see it on the news and decide, we're going to go down there and we're going to yell at Susan's dad and we're going to accuse him of being in violation of the restraining order because Josh shops at the store. So Susan's dad, who is a very smart man, he has a copy of the restraining order with him that states that basically he can shop wherever he wants to shop, even if Josh is there, and he just can't walk up to Josh, you know. As long as he doesn't do that, he's fine. Then, after uh, Stephen Powell is there yelling at Susan's dad. Which was recorded, and there's like a lengthy back and forth between oh, the two yes. of them, and like, uh, Stephen Powell is like going at it, and like, yeah, I mean... Another one of those instances where you're thinking that, like, maybe your internal monologue would say, like, maybe you should stop talking now. But, mm-hmm. like, he just word vomit all Be- over. Because he's Su- a narcissist. Susan's dad. Yeah, exactly. He just, he wants to be on the news. He wants to get his point across. He doesn't think of consequences. Like, most narcissists, they don't think of the consequences. Meanwhile, Josh also pulls up with his two boys in the car and gets out and talks to the cameras. He's crying and he's saying that there's so many personal attacks on him. Oh, tiny little violins. Uh, There's so (laughs) many personal attacks on him being led by Chuck Cox, who is Susan's father. And then Stephen Powell tells the cameras that Josh and him have lots of information about the Cox family and Susan, which is detailed in Susan's journals. And the journals contain a lot of important evidence relevant to her disappearance. So, of course, the investigators hear this because he says it all over the fucking news and use this opportunity to get a search warrant and raid Stephen Powell's home to find tons and tons of disturbing evidence, which we will now get into. And this is probably the most uh, disturbing part of the whole. I mean, the whole story is disturbing. Her disappearance is disturbing. Definitely the end of this story is disturbing. But, but also, like, don't go on TV and be like, oh, by the way, we have a bunch of evidence that the police might want. He's like, an idiot. But that's exactly what he did. So Stephen and his See, son, he might as well just said, come over to our house and search it, because we got shit you want to see. I mean, maybe there was a part of him that wanted to get caught, but... I doubt it. Well... 
But All Sharon's right. going to tell you what they did find in Stephen Paul's <gasps> house. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. I'm going to throw up in my mouth a little bit. Buckle up. While I'm talking about this. So... They go to the house, and they do find Susan's journals, but they also find Stephen's journals detailing about how he is madly in love with his daughter-in-law. And not only was he in love with her, he wanted to marry her. He even detailed about how he masturbated to her. And in his master closet, there were bags of Susan's panties, her used tampons, bags of cotton balls that she would use to take off her nail polish that were put into Ziploc bags and they were dated. There was also many songs that Stephen wrote about her because he's also a songwriter. He's not just a narcissist <laughs> and a creep. And we'll also find out in a few moments a pedophile. <laughs> but he's also a songwriter. He's not a songwriter. Spoiler alert. He's kind of His a... songs kind of suck. He's but. a renaissance man. So we're going to play one of the songs that Stephen wrote about his daughter right now. And this is... Daughter-in-law. Sorry. Oh, well, I'm sure, honestly, I'm sure he wrote songs about his daughter, too. Because he is a motherfucking creep. All right. So this is actually Stephen Powell singing. I said I love you. Is that a Okay, so that was, um, something. (laughs) Your typical father-in-law song. Yeah, this is something you write about your daughter-in-law. It's it's totally normal. Along with collecting extremely personal items that others would call trash. (laughs) So, basically, he had a whole collection of songs that he wrote about his secret, secret love for her and he, how he was sexually obsessed with her and he would also follow her when she was out without her even knowing about it and take photographs and video of her he had tons of photos of just her body parts or her head and face superimposed over other women's bodies susan confided in her friends that the real reason they moved to utah was just to get away from her father-in-law because he was despicable disgusting and evil He would try to take pictures of her under the bathroom door or just walk up to her and touch her inappropriately. She told Josh that they needed to leave and he would just brush it off like it's not a big deal. Oh, that's just my dad because that's what Josh grew up with. He grew up watching his dad treat women like that and do things like that, which is, I'm sure, why his mom left, you know. Police found all this evidence, um... But they did not find any evidence that would connect Stephen or Josh to Susan's disappearance. Um, and then in the the Oxygen documentary, the two-part series, they actually go into this much, much more deeper than they do in the ID documentary. And they actually show a lot of the videos he would take. I mean, he would take videos... Of himself. Of himself masturbating to pictures 
of her or talking about him masturbating to pictures of her. And to and, clarify, this is Stephen Powell they're talking about, the father-in-law. Yeah. And there was one of her in the bathroom, wasn't there? Like, yeah. And she was like, get out of here or whatever. Yeah. And then um, there was also a video where he had some of her lingerie that he put over a pillow with like a photo of her face and you can only imagine what he does to that I'd like to not thank you pillow but yeah he was a completely disgusting human being and if that is not bad enough the police also found photographs that Stephen took of two underage girls who live next door uh photos and video of them getting undressed sitting on the toilet and in the bathtub so obviously this is a felony so Stephen was sent to prison for child pornography and voyeurism and he was giving given a 30 month sentence and i'm gonna let mindy tell the rest of this horrifying story so meanwhile uh detective maxwell discovers that susan had a safety deposit box um and if you watch the i believe it's the id special right that starts off with her holding a video camera talking into the camera saying these are my assets so that's they kind of set that up at the beginning and then it pays off later which is kind of fun not fun but you know what i mean Re- we get it later it's kind of rewarding because she she knew she had to get this, away this from her woman. husband yeah exactly and she was doing all the right things to try and get away from him but unfortunately she something happened something happened yeah so anyway so um meanwhile detective maxwell discovers that she had the safety susan had the safety deposit box and he remembers the random key found with susan's belongings the day she was reported missing so he re- he confer he's able to confirm that the key opens a deposit box at a local bank and inside police discovered a video documentation Susan made of her assets like we were just saying along with a handwritten letter by Susan literally stating it's her last will and testament and that whatever happens this letter should not not be given or shown to Josh because she doesn't trust him. This letter basically details Susan's abusive relationship and states that if something happens to her, even if it looks like a legit accident, accident, excuse me, Josh is the one responsible. At the same time, police are able to crack some of the encryption on one of Josh's external hard drives, which again, for home use, why is your shit so heavily encrypted? Side note. And are able to view... His recent browsing history. Always clear your browsing history, people. (laughs) Um, No, unless you're a criminal, then don't do that because that will help police catch you because (laughs) you need to be locked away. And if she kills me, tell Jean Ralphio to clear my browsing history. Parks and Rec reference. Thank you very much. Um, Sorry. Side note. Um, so the cops are able to crack crack some of the encryption on one of his external hard drives and are able to view his recent browsing history, which shows searches about Topaz Mountain, which is not far from Simpson Springs, which is where he took the boys camping supposedly the night Susan vanished. A huge search was organized for the area around Topaz, complete with cadaver dogs, and eventually searchers are led by the dogs to a spot on the west side of Topaz Mountain. They find, quote, something that appears charred and in what looks like an attempt at a shallow grave. 
Unfortunately, analysis results of the chart findings were inconclusive just due to the time and, and that they've been there and the elements, exposure, et cetera, et cetera. Shortly after, police get a new tip from a man requesting a satellite image of a salvage yard where his car had supposedly been towed. The man wanted to, quote, determine whether his car had been destroyed. The caller? Dum-dum-dum! Michael Powell, Josh's brother. Recognizing the name Powell, the detective reached out to the Utah team with this info. Unfortunately, Michael's whereabouts were unaccounted for, during the time frame that Susan went missing. However, Michael sold his car, which was in relatively good shape, to a salvage yard for parts for $100. Um, and it depends on, and the oxygen special, they said that he sold the car for $500, but then the other special said $100. Regardless, it seemed like the car was not in a position to be sold based on its condition, but um, it was sold around the time of Susan's disappearance. Detectives found the car to still be at the salvage yard, and when they brought the cadaver dogs in, the dogs zeroed in on Michael Powell's car, immediately leading police to believe that the car had at one time transported a decomposing body. The car was then brought back to Utah for further processing. The police theorized that Mike helped Josh relocate Susan's remains after she'd been killed, then sold off the car to the salvage yard thinking it would be destroyed. So meanwhile, uh, Chuck Cox, uh, who is again uh, Susan's dad, decided to look into what information he could find out about um, the Powell's divorce, Mike and Josh's parents. And he found documentation showing early psychotic behavior on Josh and really Stephen's parts. Stephen often encouraged Josh. So again, this is Stephen Powell, Josh's dad. Their dad would encourage Josh and his brother to kick their mother and act out. My dad never encouraged me to kick my mother just for funsies. (laughs) But apparently that was a thing in the Powell house. Um, There was even documentation that Josh killed his sister's gerbil as a child. And uh, Susan Powell's father obviously believes Josh was a true psycho in the making, which I kind of can't really disagree with at this point. Um, A trial was held to determine who had gained custody of of Josh's two children. Susan's parents were fighting to keep the kids away from Josh because they thought, duh, Uh, He was a danger to them. Before the trial, more of his hard drive encryption had been deciphered, revealing that, like his father, Josh also had a good old porn obsession. He had hard drives that contained cartoon porn. Apparently very graphic cartoon porn. And lots of it. Totally normal. Totally normal. The judge ruled that Josh's children were unsafe in Josh's custody. Duh. Duh and awarded temporary custody to the Cox family, Susan's family. Josh was ordered to undergo a psychosexual exam before it could be determined whether or not his kids could be returned to his custody, which, sorry, why would we even be determining whether or not they should be returned to his custody? But that's just me. Um, Until then, Josh was awarded court-supervised visitations with his boys. No! Until said testing could be completed and evaluated. Because let's still... No, 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 no. Let's let the guy with the cartoon porn let his young children over to his house. He's got a porn addiction. His father is a pedophile. Granted, his father is now in prison. But does the apple fall that far from the tree? And again, this is... I get it. This is all circumstantial, but like... 
No. I also feel like, wait a minute, the whole con- the whole like camping at night thing, wouldn't that be like a child endangerment situation or child, child abuse or something? Documentation. Well, I mean, you have testimony from Josh's friends that he basically was starving his children, didn't want to give them gifts, was unhappy and treated his wife poorly when he even found out that she was pregnant with them, which is probably because he was a narcissist who demanded all of his wife's attention and became jealous of his unborn children, you know, because he knew he was going to be losing a lot of attention and was not going to be the center of his wife's world anymore. I mean, there are so many signs pointing to the fact that, one, he didn't really care about his children, obviously didn't care about his wife, right? only cared about himself, the fact that he was awarded any sort of supervision right. with his children, with, with all this evidence pointing to him being a a, a psychopath, a, a possible, you know, having a sex addiction. Which, like, I, me. whatever. You can enjoy porn, that's fine. But, like, if you have kids, I, I just feel like, like you said, the testimony of other of neighbors saying... We would have to give them money to buy food for... To, no, they would so have to give could, them food. I don't think they give them money, but... Well, maybe they or, did. Or but. help feed these kids. Yeah. Because his own wife was budgeted out of their salary to provide for their family. Like, I just, none of this that, was reported, though, at the time. Because she figured, I'm a good Mormon wife, and I don't want to report my husband. But still, I feel like that's enough. No, but all this evidence was brought up when he was trying to get court-supervised visitation. I mean, he was trying to get custody of his kids. Right, right, basically. right. Basically. And he was had his kids given to Susan's parents, thankfully, but then he wanted visitation, which... Which was granted. <sighs> Although it was supervised visitation, which now brings us to the night of February 5th, 2012. Josh is set for his very first supervised visit with the boys. The boys arrive with a social worker who is ordered to be with the boys at all times during the visitation. Upon arrival, the boys run up the front stairs to greet their father because, again, they're very young. They don't know what's going on. They don't. They see their dad as their dad. Whatever. Understandable. Josh lets them into the house. But when the social worker catches up to them, Josh grins at her and slams the door in her face. I just want to say the social worker... Is like a 60, 65-year-old woman. So once again, if you're going to give someone who maybe killed their wife with a porn addiction visitation rights with their children, the person who is supervising visitation should be like a 6'3", 270-pound <laughs> cop with a gun. Not like... A somewhat frail 65-year-old woman who, if Josh decides to do something stupid, basically has no way to defend herself or the children. Carry on, Mindy. Yeah. To to be (laughs) fair, I mean, obviously, I don't live in Utah, but like... No, this is in Washington. Oh, right. That's right. I'm sorry. I forgot because he skipped town to Washington because that's not Doesn't matter where you live across the board. This is just what makes sense and what... it's just right. And just but what I know of of organizations like this, unfortunately, they're usually underfunded. 
yeah, so Josh smiles at the, the social worker and slams the door in her face. So now, basically, his two kids are in the house. The social worker who's supposed to be with them is locked outside, and he, Josh and the kids are in. She calls 911, and here, personally, I would have thrown myself against the door and try and break it down. I'm sorry. Like, it's the law. You need to have a supervised visit. That's my own side note. I'll keep going. The, super, the, the social worker does call 911 and expresses her concern that the situation is essentially life-threatening in her opinion, as she heard Josh say from the inside, Charlie, which is one of the little guys, I have a, su- a surprise for you. Then she heard a scream from the younger son. The 911 operator continues to argue with the social worker, but by then the social worker smells gas and hangs up the phone to move her car back, which, to be fair, was a good call. Yes, I agree. Shortly after, the oh. entire freaking house explodes. And like, this is where the waterworks started for me because I did not expect this. Like to Die happen. Hard, to- like style, big ass explosion. Um, the social worker calls nine one one back again. Reiterating the urgency of the situation and confirming that a man with two children were definitely inside the house at the time of the explosion, like she said the first time she called. Side note from me. Eventually, authorities learned that both boys died from smoke inhalation after being knocked unconscious by an axe by their father, who proceeded to pour gasoline over the entire house. And Josh sat on a can of gasoline... As the whole place went up in flames, and side note for me, I hope that that gas can caught on fire and blew right up his ass. That's all I have to say right there about that. The fire had clearly been planned in advance as a bank security footage showed Josh just days before withdrawing large sums of money from his accounts and selling his children's toys. I mean, come on. He'd also called his sister to explain what bills and business needed taken care of, then left one last voice message, which I think is like the most cowardly message I've ever heard in my life. You can hear it in the special. He left his voice message to his family as a suicide farewell before setting himself and his children ablaze. Fucking disgusting piece of shit. Pussy piece of shit. Exactly. Yeah, I'm sorry. Grow up here, buddy. Police theorized that the boys were Josh's only witnesses to whatever happened to Susan, and since they were getting older and becoming more vocal, there was a greater risk that they would tell the Cox family or anyone, really, what actually happened the night Susan disappeared. Essentially, Josh needed to destroy the remaining evidence of his crime, and that evidence was his children. With Josh gone, Stephen in prison and not talking, this leaves all eyes on Mike, Josh's brother. Uh, on February 11th, 2013, Mike jumped from the seventh floor of a parking garage to his death. Both Mike and Josh took whatever they knew about Susan's disappearance to their graves. Likewise, Stephen never revealed any information about Susan's whereabouts and died one year after being released from prison. prison excuse me. Uh, theories remain that Josh had meant to do harm to Susan before her disappearance. Giovanna, is that who you said her name earlier? Yeah. Giovanna Owings, who saw Susan the day before her disappearance, recalls that her last visit to the Powell family home, when Josh, quote, made breakfast for dinner, serving pancakes, after after which Susan suddenly fell ill and needed to lay down. 
Unfortunately, no existing or clear evidence remains to prove this theory one way or another. Um, additionally, there are the 16 small droplets of blood found near the, quote, wet spot in the Powell's living room where the box fans were pointed, which Sharon mentioned earlier, um, leading police to speculate whether St Susan was murdered at home and then transported. Ultimately, no clear answers remain. Um, Chuck Cox believes that clues remain in the remaining hard drives that Josh Powell leave left behind. His hope is that police will continue to try and decrypt them to see what files remain and what clues they may provide. With Josh, his children, his brother, and father dead, these encrypted files may be the last chance at answers the Cox family may ever receive to provide them with anything resembling closure. It really pisses me off that Josh and his brother, who are probably, in my opinion, after watching the ID documentary and the Oxygen documentary, I think both of them were responsible in the uh, murder, disappearance, and cover-up of Susan Powell. I mean, officially, Susan Powell is just a missing person because no body has been found. And those charred remains they found, they couldn't Well, I don't discern. even think there were remains, necessarily. It was just charred whatever i don't i don't know if they yeah. had any dna evidence to prove that there was there even was nothing to pull a even. body yeah, yeah let yeah. alone her body but the fact that they both took the easy way out and that neither of them will so chicken ever fucking pay at least stephen powell did have to serve some time um for well for his crime of pedophilia and voyeurism um, but also, I do think he was probably involved a little bit in the, the cover-up of Susan's murder. So at least... For sure. Well, so um, there's a 14 minutes short special on after the ID channel special. What do they call it? The it's Missing like, Pieces? Yes, thank you. Um, there was Josh, there was Mike, and then Jenny, who was their sister. Um, we find out that prior to Stephen Powell's arrest... Uh, Jenny actually went to the police and offered to wear a wire to try and get Josh to confess to his wife's murder, which I think says a hell of a lot that, like, your sister goes to the cops and is like, "There, yeah, you're right, there's something weird going on and I'm willing to help. And like, we also learn that she moved away from her father in Washington and went to live with her mother in Utah. So she kind of estranged herself from that whole rest of the side of the family. <laughs> yeah, they were... I mean, Josh, his brother, and they actually have that other sister who also we find later more in the Oxygen documentary that right. she was also, she has a lot of issues. Well, she Jennifer was, was like the sane one, it seems like. She was the sane one. And she was also very close with Susan and very concerned, more concerned than Josh about where Susan was. So in this, in this Missing Pieces special, it's subtitled and difficult to hear. Uh, but the special shows Jenny's conversation with Josh that was wired, and it took place after he moved to Washington to live with his father, Stephen. Jenny is heard saying that she just wants to know what happened, and Josh continuously denies having anything to do with his wife's disappearance. Though Jenny says that based on the circumstances, and I'm totally paraphrasing here, uh, it sure looks fishy, but, is suddenly, but she's suddenly interrupted by Stephen's appearance. But we repeatedly hear Stephen call Jenny, his daughter, remind you, a bitch, and he tells her to face reality. Jenny responds with, okay, I'll face reality. Josh took the boys camping in the middle of the night, and Susan was okay with that? Hmm? Okay? 
Uh, this makes Steven get even angrier, again calling Jenny a bitch, and then he pulls the classic, which I don't mean a laugh, I'm sorry, but he straight up tells her to get off his porch, <laughs> which, come on, dude. Um, also is covered is that uh, Stephen, how did we say his name? I think it's Coacher. Coacher. See, Stephen Coacher's disappearance. Uh, he disappeared from Nevada one week after Susan disappeared uh, in December of 2013. Last seen in Henderson, uh, Nevada. His home was in Utah. While odd, he did not really exhibit signs of pre-suicidal behavior. He did drive across a few states prior to his disappearance, even stopping at his ex's parents' house in Utah, saying he was going to visit family from Sacramento, California. Uh, He ultimately drove 1,100 miles from his home, then returned, and the day before he went missing, he went to work as usual. But the last footage of him is on a home security camera in a nice neighborhood in Henderson, Nevada, three to four hundred miles from his home, walking down a block and after abandoning his car. The theory is that he may have ended up in the wrong neighborhood or was in the wrong place at the wrong time and could have suffered from depression or some kind of psychotic break. Regardless, there is no indication that he even knew Susan Powell or that the two disappearances were remotely related. Lastly, the ramblings of Stephen Powell being interrogated by the U.S. Marshal are shown on the special. And wow. Um, the interview happened years before Stephen's true pedophile face was shown. <laughs> but Stephen claimed that Susan loved him back and that she saw him as a, quote, relief valve. Ew. Right? As Josh was often hard to get along with. But then she told his parents, her parents, that Stephen was a pedophile and that he'd been coming on to her. As said to the marshal, and I quote, Stephen said, pedophile? You know, I don't know what the cutoff age is, but it's not 20-year-olds. Ew. Ew. so gross. So that basically wraps up the story about the disappearance of Susan Powell. So this was basically just the Cliff Notes version of the Susan Powell disappearance. But if you do want to know more about the story, I actually just recently found out that there is an entire 18-episode podcast called Cold. I only just started listening to it. I'm only about five episodes in, but it goes into much, 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 much more detail about the case. It starts from back at the beginning of Stephen Powell growing up and documents um, some of the stories of the way he was raised and his parents and how they treated him and his siblings, um, which kind of explains why he became pretty fucked up and then fucked up his own kids. There's also actual audio of Josh Powell recording some of his um, thoughts and um, stories on a audio diary. And I'm not really sure why Stephen Powell and Josh Powell, who are two disgusting, despicable, horrible people, decided that they were going to make video and audio recordings of all of their horrible thoughts and feelings. And if you want to know more about the story, just listen to the cold podcast. So far, I'm really, really enjoying it. And I don't care what anyone says. I 100% believe that Josh Powell was guilty 
of murdering his wife. And if you listen to some of this evidence that basically he recorded in his journals, you it, it becomes even more clear to me now that he was guilty. And you also hear testimony from previous girlfriends about mm. some of the shit he did with them, stalking them and abusing them mentally and it, it just it all comes together full circle so I highly recommend listening to the cold podcast I will say that I did start it and granted I was at work and so that I had other things going on um but I already knowing the story I had to actually stop because I just was like oh god I can't I can't, I'm not I can't even get into this mindset again because it does go into a lot more detail but also I'm sorry these guys are kind of like the worst criminals ever because that was my biggest thing through all of this I know that like serial killers or whatever they say they like to like have trophies or whatever or whatnot and clearly Stephen Powell had a bunch of uh we'll call them trophies I guess from uh his daughter-in-law but like don't record that shit man what is wrong with you like i i did that's the part that blows my mind that they had they basically gave the evidence over to the police like it was all right there and i think that's the narcissistic parts of them thinking that they're above the law they're too smart for the cops they're never gonna get caught so I I kind of think they needed this release to get things off their chest so that they can actually live with themselves. And you look mean at a release valve? The release valve, if you want. <laughs> but yeah, if you, um, you know, they had to be able to, to look at themselves in the mirrors every day and they had to be able to live with themselves. And I think maybe justifying some of the reasons why they did these things made it easier for them to do that because Mm -hmm. what other reason would you have to make video diaries of these disgusting things that they would do and think and their beliefs and it it was just so i yeah i i really really recommend listening to this podcast um and I just want to get into um, so some things that I, I looked up after watching the documentary because I was kind of dumbfounded at the, the, the <laughs> yeah. fact that they never arrested him because I really, really followed the Scott Peterson case when sure. that yeah. was a thing. And basically they were able to convict him on purely circumstantial evidence, even though they did eventually find the body there, there was already so many signs pointing to him being the one who um, was responsible for the disappearance of his wife and unborn son. Um, some of the things that I, I found in my research, um, I believe most of this is from Wikipedia and um, a few other sites, which um, I want to give credit where credit's due. I did not make note of where exactly I found this information. There's so much, though, seriously, like... There's so much on the web. I found it on the web. This does not come from me. (laughs) Anyways. So although it is still true that the absence of a body makes a murder prosecution extremely difficult, there is no longer a hard and fast rule that there must be a body for a murder conviction. In the U.S. in 1960, the California case of People v. Scott, the court found that circumstantial evidence is enough to be convicted of murder, Hmm. and L. Ewing Scott was convicted of the murder of his wife, Evelyn, who disappeared from her home May 16, 1955. So that basically... 
basically wow. set the precedent um, for future cases where nobody has been found. Circumstantial evidence in law is evidence not drawn from direct observation of a fact in issue. If a witness testifies that he saw a defendant fire a bullet into a body of a person who then died, this is a direct testimony of material facts in murder. And the only question is whether the witness is telling the truth. If, however, the witness is able to testify only that he or she heard the shot and that they arrived on the scene seconds later to see the accused standing over the corpse with a smoking pistol in their hand, the evidence is circumstantial. The accused may have been shooting at the escaped killer or merely have been a bystander who picked up the weapon after the killer had dropped it. While it's smoking and pointed at the dead person. Hey, if you didn't see it, it may not have happened. That's right. Things aren't always what they seem to be, so. Good point. Circumstantial evidence can be fingerprints, DNA evidence, blood analysis, human behavior, phone records, and when sufficient enough to exclude every other reasonable hypothesis may prove the death of a missing person, the existence of a homicide, and the guilt of the accused. According to Wikipedia, more than 50 people have been convicted of murder in the U.S. without a body. To be convicted of murder, all that is needed is some proof beyond reasonable doubt that the defendant committed murder. That proof can be made of any evidence and does not necessarily need to include the body. The killer could have dissolved the body in acid and flushed it down the toilet or kicked it out of a plane above Mount Everest. Wow. That, that, that's actually quite a way to kill somebody. <laughs> what I don't understand, though, about this, and I mean, again, we live in Chicago, I, it maybe it's different in Washington and Utah, but like child protective services, wouldn't they have gotten involved? How in the world did he even did Josh? I, I should specify even get supervised visits. Like I feel like everything that they had, circumstantial yes, would be like this is an unhealthy place for kids to live. Yeah. Like, that's what blows my mind about this, because they had people, like, friends testifying, and we would hide money for her so she could buy gifts and food for the kids. Like, that's the part that, like, really blew my mind, that they would even let him see the children. And that, honestly, that comes down to, I mean, obviously, all this evidence was gathered over a big span of time. Yeah. And... But by the end, when the judge made her final decision, I mean, that's something that judge is going to have to live with for the rest of her life. That's a good point. Um, I would not want to be that judge. And I believe if it was up to me, I don't know what the laws are, but I don't think I would have allowed that based on all the information that was available at this time. And who knows if she had all the information that the cops gathered back in Utah. You would like to think That she would have all that evidence when she made her decision because you would think it's very important in this case. Just a little bit. But who knows what actually was said. You only see bits and pieces of the court hearing. Um, Yeah, I I mean, there's so many frustrating things about this case. And unfortunately, all the people who know what happened to Susan Powell are dead or presumed dead. I can't imagine that Susan Powell is still alive at this point. Unfortunately, I have to agree with you. Um, and it was so sad watching 
all of those documentaries because her father was just heartbroken because he's like, I mean, his reputation was attacked by those jerk bags and then the Powells being the jerk bags, I should specify. Except for Jennifer, I have to say. Except for Jennifer. She she is amazing and I I don't think – I don't think she ever thought her brother was innocent and she fought to – she fought on Susan's side. Yeah. So there you have it. That is the uh, the Cliff Notes version of the Susan Powell disappearance. Catastrophe um, extravaganza. Uh, I mean, it just keeps getting weirder and weirder. Yeah. And who knows if they'll ever find a body or um, crack those encrypted hard drives they took from... Which, that too, with, that, with the technology we have now, I... I and after seeing, like, the computers that Josh built, I was like, his password is probably, like, guest, like, on Archer. <laughs> you know, like, I I am i don't know why. It, it can't be that hard to encrypt those hard drives, especially now. But, again, this didn't happen, like, yesterday. This happened, you know. Almost a decade ago. And- right. And we don't have... They didn't have certain technology or know-how. And and who knows if the cops are even still looking into it at this point. Because obviously there's a lot of other uh, cases that they're probably looking into. But now, you know, with um, these documentaries being out and also with this new podcast discussing the details of this case, maybe they'll start looking into it again. Maybe someone will come forward with more information or more evidence um even if they could just like find the body so that susan's family can finally put their daughter to rest that would be amazing yeah and um yeah so i highly recommend watching the investigation discovery documentary and also the two-part oxygen special and if you have any um thing that you want to um, discuss as far as the Susan Powell case or other missing person cases, or if you would like to hear us talk about other true crime cases, um, send us your recommendations. And also, as always, ghost stories, scary stories, any other shit you want to talk about, you can email us at horrorstalkhorror at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at horrorstalkhorror and on Twitter, you can find us at Horrors Horror. And as always, thanks, thanks for, for getting, getting creepy, creepy with, with us. us.